0: Today's scripture reading is John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Faith. Um, Good to be with you all. Uh, Happy New Year. Thanks for braving the cold and being here. Uh, It is a joy to gather uh, and worship together. My name is Reed. Uh, I serve as one of the pastors here, and uh, yeah, it is an honor and a delight um, to open God's Word together with you. Um, I'm going to pray for our time as we uh, continue in worship together, as we hear from God, and so I invite you to just pray with me in this time. Father in heaven, you are a God of revelation. You are a God who has made himself known to us. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the fact that you have given us your word, that we might know you, that we might fully know ourselves, that we might fully understand how life is to be lived best. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have to hear from you. And so, Lord, I ask through the power of your Spirit that you would speak to us, that you would grant us the capacity and the receptivity to to hear you, to know you, to delight in you, and to respond to you. Lord, I pray that you would equip me in this time to preach your word faithfully and truthfully. Lord, I pray that anything that comes out of my mouth that is not true, would it be forgotten? Would it be rejected? And Lord, anything that I say that is true in accordance with your word, may it be heard, may it be received, may may it be delighted in. And may we see and behold the beauty of the Lord Jesus in our time together. Lord, we ask that you would accomplish your purposes in this time. Reveal to us wonderful things from your word. We ask in the name of Christ, who is the word of God. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, as Pastor Nicky mentioned, um, it's good to be with you all, and and kids, we're glad you're here in the service. Hopefully, you you got a Kid Connect on your way in, Um, and I I need your help. uh, The little thing, I'm going to ask you some questions here, okay? So, who here, by show of hands, who here had a real Christmas tree this year? Real, like you chopped it down, or you got it from Home Depot, or you stole it from your neighbor's yard? Okay, okay, good, okay, good, wonderful. Okay, who had a fake Christmas tree? Oh, a lot more, okay, okay, that was the same as first service. Okay, all right, all right, now here's some more. You've got it. Okay, that's wonderful. Okay, now here's a, number, a very important question. Is your Christmas tree still up? Show of hands. Whose Christmas tree is still Oh, okay, okay, we got some procrastinators or, or people who love Jesus, I guess. Um, okay, that's, uh, that's good. Okay, now here's another question. This is very revealing. Whose Christmas tree stays up kind of through most of January? Okay, we've got so okay, all right, that's wonderful. You know, and in some ways, that's actually traditional. We're still in the season of Christmas. I think that's really good. I, I for one, the Capel family, we have put our Christmas tree away. Uh, all the decorations are put away, and I, I love Christmas. I, I truly do, but I also love putting stuff away. I love decluttering. Uh, this past week, we kind of, like, decluttered and organized so much. Oh, my gosh, my heart is in a happy place right now. But, but I love Christmas. I absolutely do, but, but somebody who loves putting things away more than me is my, my buddy Dean. Uh, for, for several years, my friend Dean, uh, w- basically his goal was to get rid of the Christmas tree the morning of December 26th. Okay, so the morning after Christmas, he, like, he has gotten all the decorations off, the tree is at the dump the morning of December 26th. Like that is, that's next level Grinch, okay? And so, and he loves Christmas too, but what's so interesting, when he was telling us about this, he realized that when he would drop off the Christmas tree at the dump, there was always one tree already there. Which means there's somebody else even more grinchier than him. And so he had set a goal to be the first one. It's like next year, I'm going to be the first tree drop-off at that site. And so he shows up even earlier the next year, and the tree is still there. There's still he's number two. And so the next year he went even earlier, and he still he could never get to the number one status. And when he was telling us this, I remember he said to me and my friends, he's like, I want to meet this guy and make him my new best friend. And, and I, just, I just love that. And again, like w- whether your Christmas tree is put away on December 26th, or whether it stays up until spring break, um, eventually Christmas you know, needs to be packed away. You know. And, and I know this may kind of sound cheesy and hokey, but, but here's my concern, is that for, for those of us within the church, we might have a tendency that as we pack away all of the Christmas decor, that we pack away Christ himself. That, that we kind of have, my, my fear is that we have a view of, of Jesus that is more akin to the wreath on our door, the lights on our house, and the tree in our home. It's this idea that he has a, a prominent place in our lives, but for a season. There, there's a certain level of jurisdiction that he has, but then for the vast majority of our life and for the year, he's packed away to a place of obscurity, of irrelevance, where he has no functional say in our lives until the next Christmas season. And, and, I, and I want us to honestly ask ourselves, as a church, is, is this true of us? Do we kind of pack Jesus away until next Christmas? Do we functionally put him back into a place of obscurity, on the shelf? Maybe we think about him from time to time, but does Jesus occupy a seat of influence in our lives throughout the year? If Jesus is who he says he is, then we have no place packing him away. He must remain prominent in our lives, in our homes, in every aspect of our lives. Which is why I'm I'm really eager to walk through our next sermon series through the Gospel of John uh, that we're calling Word Made Flesh. In this series, we're going to see, as, as John is showing us, the Apostle John is emphatic in his Gospel that Jesus is unequivocally, undeniably, God. That he is not just a God, that he is not just an influence, that he is not just a prophet. He is not simply sent from God or empowered by God. He is, in fact, God. And if this is true, if this is true of who Jesus says he is, then how we respond to him is of utmost importance, How we respond to Jesus, who is God, is of utmost importance. It means that we can't stand on the sidelines, kind of observing Jesus from afar, if we're taking him seriously. It means that we can't simply remain spiritual or or religious or kind of interested. If we're to take Jesus seriously and at his word, we must respond to him as though he is God, for that is how he's revealed to us. And so this morning, as we begin our series in John, we look at John's opening prologue, this very powerful collection of words describing the beauty, the glory, the grandeur of Jesus, who is the Word of God made flesh. And so as we look at these opening uh, verses in chapter 1, I want us to all honestly ask ourselves this question, whether you're a Christian or not, to honestly ask this question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do we as a church collectively say that Jesus is? Not just what we read in our Bibles, not just what we kind of give intellectual assent to. And for you kids, not just what your parents believe. What do you actually believe about Jesus? Who do you say that he is? And so I I know we heard our passage read, that that faith read first. I want to read it again uh, a little bit slowly, but with this question in the back of our minds, who do we say that Jesus is? So again, hear the word of the Lord from the Apostle John. It is not mere coincidence that John opens up his gospel account of the Lord Jesus with the very words that the entire biblical storyline opens up with in the beginning. Even if you've never read the Bible, you, you know how the Bible begins. I mean, like culturally, literally, we just know, like, the Bible begins with in the beginning. And John is doing something profound here. He, he's not just. He's not just echoing Genesis. He's not just giving reference to Genesis. It's it's not as if, like, you know, Moses' descendants get royalties every time Genesis is quoted. But rather, what John is doing is he's showing the interconnectedness of the story of Scripture. John is poetically and definitively saying that the very one who stood before time. The very one who stood over the nothingness of nothing at creation is the one who has entered into creation in the person of Jesus as the word of God made flesh. What John is showing us in beginning his gospel with the words in the beginning is that this entire collection of books in the Bible come together to tell one beautiful story about Jesus How from the opening words of Genesis, God is preparing the world to receive his word come in the person of Jesus. John declares that the word is from the beginning. And so thus what this means is that before time and space were created, Jesus, the word of God, was. This is a powerful statement about the person of Jesus. But even as I say that, this is where many people, maybe some of us here today, this is where many of us check out of the sermon. And some of you are like, "Oh, we've checked out long before this." Uh, but, no, but, but seriously, like this is where some people, like, because of the implausibility of what the scriptures teach, this is where many people check out. In fact, many people see, can't get past the implausibility of just the opening words of the Bible in the beginning, God. The idea of a supernatural being, uh, of a divine creator that stands outside of time and space is too implausible for people in our day. I know it's common in our day to believe that there is nothing outside the material world and that the cosmos, the universe, is the only thing that really exists. And and I get that. I understand that that worldview and that perspective. And while I recognize that there are challenges to belief in God and the supernatural and the divine, I also know that a rejection of a creator of some kind, presents a whole new set of problems. And so so we need to be very open and clear about this, because atheists and skeptics do not have the monopoly on truth of the origins of existence. They they do not own the answers to all of these questions of where did we come from, what is the purpose of life, what is the origin of the universe and humanity. I've, I've always appreciated the intellectual honesty of an English playwright by the name of Julian Barnes. Uh, Julian Barnes, he's an atheist, uh, and he wrote a memoir called Nothing to be Frightened Of. And in it, he actually kind of gives a little bit of a a critique to his own tribe, to, to atheists, to skeptics. And he says this, how can we atheists be sure that we know enough to know? As 21st century neo-Darwinian materialists, convinced that the meaning and mechanism of life have only been fully clear since the year 1859, which was the the year when uh, Darwin's origin of the species came out, he says, we hold ourselves categorically wiser than those credulous knee benders, referring to people who believe in God, who worship the divine. And he goes on to say this very honestly, we are no more evolved and certainly no more intelligent than them. What convinces us our knowledge is so final? Again, I appreciate the honesty. Here. He's not—he's not saying that the Christian worldview is valid and he believes it, but he's just saying like that no one can, can claim categorical, definitive truth over the origins of the universe. And he's just kind of being honest about critiquing those within his own camp. And so again, I understand why people object to the existence of God. I understand. I mean, I've sat across the table with some of you and friends of yours about questions of the faith and the existence of God. But here's what I would say. The haunting question still remains for any person who is to be thoughtful about the world we inhabit. And that haunting question is, why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there something rather than nothing? We could spend hours and hours and hours unpacking that question. But if there is no creator God, who stands out outside of time and space. If there is no original source and first cause of all of existence, then what is the viable explanation for the fact that we exist? There, there's a Christian author by the name of Glenn Scrivener, uh, who, which is just a great name, uh, and he offers this rather clever insight uh, and kind of an observation of, of the pr- perspective of atheists and skeptics around the origins of the universe, and he says this some have spoken of the universe spontaneously creating itself. The whole cosmos propped up by nothing, absolutely nothing. As miracles go, this would be unparalleled. Everything from nothing, he asks. Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus, but this would mean the virgin birth of the cosmos. In fact, it's the virgin birth of the cosmos, but without a virgin, without anything. Here would be the greatest conjuring trick ever pulled, nothing up the sleeve, no sleeve at all, not even a magician, just pure magic out of nowhere. Now I say this, and and I I think Scrivener is also kind of of this sentiment, I I don't bring this up to belittle or mock or have this kind of gotcha moment with people who have genuine questions and doubts and criticisms of the Christian faith. I I don't want to, to minimize or belittle them. My aim is to simply show that the rejection of, a, of the idea of God to solve a metaphysical problem basically just exchanges one set of problems for another. And again, I will be the first to admit that belief in God is not a simple, easy thing. It does not come together quite naturally. We should absolutely ask questions and voice doubts I encourage you and invite you to, to raise those and share them with people you trust and love. But, but what I want for all of us is to at least consider what John is presenting to us and the beauty and the glory of Jesus being the Word of God. Because here's the thing, at the end of the day, you, we, we know, we know deep within our bones that we are more than just our bones. We, we know that, that we are not just brains on sticks, That we are not just a collection of rational processes and thoughts. We know we have more to us than that. In fact, Darwin himself, Darwin who's the the, the father of natural selection and evolutionary theory, Darwin himself recognized and wrestled with the tension of a godless world of natural selection and, and a world that instilled and inspired awe and beauty and transcendence even within himself. In in his own memoir, Voyage of the Beagle, which is just a great name for a book, uh, he says this, whilst standing in, no one says whilst in it, we should bring that back, whilst standing in the midst of the grandeur of a Brazilian forest, it is not possible to give an adequate idea of the higher feelings of wonder, admiration, and devotion, which fill and elevate the mind. And he goes on to say this, I will remember my conviction that there is more in man than the mere breath of his body. Darwin declared this. What he's admitting in some way, shape, or form here is that there is a form of knowing that is not simply rooted in mere facts. That there is a pathway of knowing something that is found through the channel of beauty. And so absolutely, should we be a people who who think deeply about our faith, about God, about life, reality, morality, existence? Absolutely Jesus himself declares, we should worship the Lord your God with, with your, all of your mind. But, but we as Westerners, we, we've kind of inherited a way of, of thinking and operating that kind of places the idea of, of truth and knowledge and reason and logic as the primary and chief way in which we know anything fully. And I think this is, in some ways, kind of difficult. We, we, we almost exclusively focus on left-brain-oriented things, just reason, logic, propositional truths. And hear me, don't, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying, like, my pastor doesn't believe in logic. I'm not saying that. We should absolutely value logic. In fact, the word uh, in John, rescri- describing Jesus as the word, it's the word logos, it's where we get logic from. And so what John is declaring to us is a truth, but also a beauty. He is showing us that knowledge, true knowledge, is not simply found through information, but through beholding beauty. But we as Westerners, we value reason, logic, and propositional truths, and almost at the expense of some of the other classical transcendentals of of goodness and beauty. And in John's prologue, we see truth, we see beauty, and we see goodness bound up in the Word made flesh, in the person of Jesus, showing us that, yes, information, knowledge, and truth is important, but beholding beauty is of equal importance. In fact, Dr. Kurt Thompson, who was with us a few months ago, in his most recent book, The Soul of Desire, he describes this very phenomenon of kind of the Western mind. He says this, "...we modernists believe that to think is the the foundation upon which the house uh, constituting what it means to be human is built." And by thinking, we can accurately and rationally perceive what is good. And once we know what is good, we can rationally decide what is beautiful. We believe that thinking is ultimately more important than what we experience with our physical senses, let alone what we know to be ethically good. And he goes on to say, and we have applied this no less in our life in the church. Now again, don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't don't hear me saying like truth doesn't matter. It's all relative. I believe in absolute objective truth. I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that is a truth. If you reject, you do not make it into his kingdom now and forever. I believe in objective truth. But what we must understand is that God's word given to us is not just information to be digested and understood. It is meant to be a mirror. It is meant to reflect the beauty of God back to us, beholding his beauty while we may think that thinking comes first, we actually can't make sense of things without first sensing things. Does that make sense? No pun intended. Uh, don't, yeah, you can laugh at that if you want to. But, but Dr. Thompson, what he, he goes on to say this. This is really helpful. He says, this is how our brain works. First we sense, then we make sense of what we sense. And If you think about John's prologue, John begins... Yes, he's giving us information. Yes, he is proclaiming propositional truth, but he's doing through, through uh, poetic beauty. He's showing us Jesus as the word who was at creation, who's saying existence into being. In fact, if you even think about it, Jesus was the embodied word of God before we had the written, recorded word of God in the New Testament, Before the written, recorded, propositional truth of the scriptures were given to the church, the word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us. We'll look more at that passage next week, but in verse 14, we see these words, and the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory and the beauty of Jesus is first seen and revealed to the world as a person, to know, to behold, to delight, and to love, to adore. The beauty of the Word of God is revealed as an embodied person in Jesus before the written and recorded Word of God is given to the world. And this is what John is doing in his prologue. He's showing us the beauty of who Jesus is. He is not just revealing the truth that Jesus is God, although he is doing that, undeniably, unequivocally, but he is also showing and displaying the beauty that Jesus is. Is God. There's a there's a French author who wrote the book, The Little Prince, and whose name I will not even attempt to articulate correctly, I just can't. But he penned these very wise words uh, that are ascribed to him. He says this if you want to build a ship, you know, a, a vessel on the sea, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people together to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Now, are those things important? Yeah, do you need to build a ship? Absolutely. Do you need to kind of delegate work and assignments on the ship? Absolutely. But man, the first thing is to build within a people a longing and a desire for the waves and the ocean, for the smell of salt in the air, for the endless sky. And that is what John is doing in the opening of his gospel. He is instilling within us, his readers, a longing for the endless immensity of Jesus, the word of God made flesh. And this is what I love, I just love about John's gospel. I love all the gospels, just like all my children. I love all all my children the same. I love all the gospels the same. But there's something unique about John in comparison to the synoptic gospel writers of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they give us beautiful historical detail of the birth of Christ. I'm thankful that that is in recorded scripture for us. You know, I mean, we just came out of the the, the, uh, celebration of Advent, remembering Christ's birth, the details of Luke's account, of Matthew's account. Mark gives us details of how John the Baptist was born and how he was the forerunner of Jesus. And John's like, oh, that's cute. You think that's something? Hold my beer. Watch this. And what John does is he backs up and he gives us this beautiful, glorious, cosmic view of the birth of Christ in the way in which he displays who Jesus is. Both are necessary. It is so important for us to see the details of the human aspect of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account and to see the beauty of the divine cosmic aspect of Jesus, the Word of God, in John's account. What Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, they essentially show us Jesus like a Google Earth image of our location. So this is a a picture of our church. This is where we're at right now, okay? And so I don't know if you've ever seen our church from this angle, but, you know, you have a unique perspective of our church. Like, oh, that's what our roof looks like? It's like, it looks like a star and underneath is buried treasure. It looks kind of like a treasure map, but, but like, this is a weird perspective. We don't look at our church this way, but you get details of the parking lot. Oh, okay. I can see my house from here and all that. But John, so this is what Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. They give us a perspective with detail. And then John says, that's cute. Let me show you, let me show you that same picture, but from a more glorious sight. And so you could say in one sense, kids, can anybody see the church still in that picture? Nobody? No, it's, it's, it's right It's right in there. It's right, I mean, so in one sense, this is still a picture of our church, in a sense, right? But just from a more glorious cosmic perspective. In the same way, what John is doing in his prologue, is showing us the beauty of Jesus, who is God himself. He is showing us the beauty and the truth of the glory of the word of God. And it ought to instill with us in us a sense of awe and wonder at the very mention of the name of Jesus. Because church, here, here's, here's what's true about following Jesus. We do not simply agree with Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, you, you don't simply agree with him you don't simply pay attention to him. You don't even simply seek after him. We first and foremost, as followers of Jesus, we adore him. We worship him. We delight in him. Not simply because he has something for us, or that he is helpful in providing order to our lives, or because he will forgive our sins, but because he himself is inherently intrinsically worthy of worship as the word of God made flesh. And in the great hymn, crown him with many crowns, there's a verse that we actually rarely sing in churches, but it's a beautiful verse in declaring the glory of Jesus, the word of God, crown him the Lord of years, the potentate of time, creator of the rolling spheres ineffably sublime, all hail, redeemer hail. For thou hast died for me, thy praise shall never, never fail throughout eternity. This is the word of God made flesh in the person of Jesus. And so church, the words of the Apostle John are given to us, not merely to serve as content for Christian creeds throughout history, although it is absolutely that. I mean, John's gospel provides so much foundation for the creeds of the historic Christian church, but that's not John's intention they are no less than words that we must believe. These are no less than words that we must believe as followers of Jesus. But family, in these words, penned for us by the Apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, we behold the eternality of Jesus, the Word of God, who was present before the dawn of time. Because in John 1.1, we read, in the beginning was the Word. Church, in these words, we behold the divinity of Jesus, the word of God, who was not just with God, but was himself God, as John says at the end of verse 1, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In these words, church, we see and behold the creativity of Jesus, the word of God, who made all things, in verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Church, in these words, we behold the necessity of Jesus, the word of God, whose very existence is the source from which all light, love, and light are derived. In verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And church, in these words, we behold the victory of Jesus, the word of God, whose power and presence in our world brings about a life to conquer the darkness of our sin and shame. Read and rejoice with me in these words, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Amen? That is what John is declaring to us about the word of God, about Jesus, that he is not simply a God, he is not simply a prophet, he is not simply a teacher, he is in fact the word of God made flesh to dwell among us. And so friends, if we are to take seriously the question that I pose to each of us, who do we say that Jesus is? If we're to take that question seriously, we see in John's opening prologue that there is no other choice for us than to conclude, Jesus is God or he's nothing. Jesus is God or he's nothing. Plain and simple, but profound and startling nonetheless. Jesus is God or he's nothing. So family, I don't know where you all stand in terms of your belief and your allegiance to Jesus. I don't know where you stand in terms of this question, who do you say that Jesus is? And I'm quite sure that there are many questions and doubts and struggles and wrestlings that are in your mind and heart. And I want to say that is okay. I want, I want you to hear me because I, this was not something that was encouraged kind of in my youth culture, that it is okay to bring questions and doubts together as we wrestle together and seek to follow Jesus together. But what I want to do is encourage you to bring your questions, bring your doubts, as we journey together, as we journey through the gospel of John, as we seek to follow Jesus on this road. But as we journey, I want us all, regardless of what you believe about Jesus, you need to know this, that Jesus is God or he's nothing that is how John presents him him to us. That is how Jesus presents himself to us. And I don't know how that sits with you. It it may startle you. It may scare you. It may anger you. It may inspire you. It may comfort you. But Jesus is God or he's nothing. And so whatever that truth does, what I hope it does is that it draws you. I hope it at least puts within you a, a willingness and a desire to lean in and to ask questions, and to explore, to maybe put it this way, to be open to the Word of God. Whether whether you follow Jesus or not, what I'm asking all of us to do this, this year and through John's gospel is to be open to the Word of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, my prayer is that you would more fully, faithfully, and fruitfully believe and behold that Jesus is the Word of God made flesh, I pray that you would hear these words not merely as doctrine that intrigues us, intrigues our minds, but as a hopeful and beautiful truth that invades our lives, that invades every aspect of our lives for our good. And so be open to Jesus as the word who speaks into every part of our life. But if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I urge the same thing of you, to be open to the word of God to be open to the word of God, to be open with your questions and doubts for sure. But if I may, be willing to doubt your doubts. Be willing to question your questions. Where have they come from? Add them to ours as we journey and wrestle together. Be open to the possibility that Jesus is the word of God made flesh who has come to bring you out of darkness and into the light of his kingdom now and forever. Be open to the possibility that, yes, while there might be a gap ahead of you to step forward into belief and to trust Jesus, you better believe that there's a gap behind you to go back to a place of disbelief. In fact, Sheldon Van Aken, in his book Severe Mercy... Sheldon Van Aachen was, was a true pagan, like, like worshiped the, 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 the earth and the, the, the elements, and he actually came to faith in Christ later in life through the famed Christian author C.S. Lewis. And Sheldon Van Aachen, in writing In Severe Mercy, he, he documents this juncture where he was at in his life where he was trying to consider following Jesus or not. And he pens these very very open, honest, and kind of haunting words. He said, The position was not, as I had comfort- been, uh, been comfortably thinking all these months, merely a question of whether I was to accept the Messiah or not. It was a question of whether I was to accept him or reject him. My God. There was a gap behind me, too. Perhaps the leap to acceptance was a horrifying gamble, but what of the leap to rejection? There might be no certainty that Christ was God, but by God, there was no certainty that he was not. And so church, what this means is that we all, whether you believe in Jesus or not, must answer the question, who do you say that Jesus is? He says that he is either God or nothing. He says that he is the word made flesh. And so friends, as we journey together through John's gospel this year, I pray that each of us, regardless of what we believe about Jesus, would be open to the word of God to be open to what God has for us, to hear, to believe, and to behold the beauty of Jesus, the Word of God made flesh. Amen? Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. This is not merely a doctrine that we hold. It is a truth in which we hope. For our God has drawn near to us. We'll look more at this next week, but our God has come to be like us in order to make us like him.